This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. It's time for Right Spot with Dunedin UNESCO's City of Literature. Well, tomorrow evening in Aotearoa, Dunedin, an opportunity to hear Ruth Shaw in conversation with Magella Cullinane about Ruth's new book, the bookseller at the end of the world, but from the end of the world, I should say. And it's uh, an an amazing story that uh, that brings Ruth here for that discussion, and no doubt uh, a book that you could immerse yourself in and be considerably moved by. We look forward now to having a a conversation with Ruth, who joins us on the line. Ruth, uh, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Ruth, uh, when I, I was handed the task of having a conversation with you, uh, a joyful task, I must say, I th- <laughs> thought to myself, where on earth do I start? Um, some of our listeners might have been fortunate enough to hear you in conversation with Kim Hill relatively recently, uh, and uh, and what an amazing conversation that was. Uh, but others won't know anything of your story, and for us to work our way through it, I would need a good half a day to sit down and have a chat with you. So <laughs> I thought we might start at the end of your story, or at least the point at which we're at right now, which is um, the celebration of the release of this amazing book. You are based in Manapuri, and you have opened up not one, not two, but three bookshops of a sort, to cater for visitors and locals alike. And one would suspect that that means that uh, a passion for reading might have been part of your life. Is that the case? I would say that's definitely the case, Jeff. I don't think I could live without books. I'm standing in the middle of my office, which was our spare bedroom, and I would say that there's about... Um, in my bookshelves, maybe another thousand books, and every room I've got is full of books. One stage, my husband said to me, if you bring a book in, you've got to take one out, because we had no more room for shelves. But that didn't work, so I've just got books everywhere. So no, I couldn't live without them, Jeff. And this uh, this mission, if you like, to to bring books to the people, uh, is that something that uh, that perhaps you harboured as a as an idea at any stage of your life before you actually did it? I mean, when I look at the things that you have busied yourself with, um, it doesn't seem that you were on the trajectory to do this. It almost seems that settling down in a very quiet spot at the bottom of the South Island, uh, was the least likely thing that was going to happen to you. But was it something that you perhaps thought might? No, never. I always had books, even when I was sailing. I always made room for books. But I never, ever thought that I would have the joy of having a bookshop, let alone three. Um, And I would say that I'm very, very lucky because, you know, I'm 76 now. And... I have the the joy from October right through to May um, having my three bookshops open and meeting <clears throat> lots and lots of fantastic people. I think people that read books, are they've all got wonderful stories to tell. And I'm just, you know, I, I'm 
I'm very excited about being, what could you call, retired, so I've got time to do this. Well, fortunately for us, you do uh, have and have taken some time to decide to tell us your story in, in, in your own book. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But um, I suppose one of the questions people might have, Ruth, is why three bookshops? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've got this. <clears throat> My father was always full of ideas and he always encouraged me. Excuse me while I cough. <laughs> always encouraged me to um, dream big. And so I've got the main bookshop, which is mainly uh, 45 South and Below books, specialising in rare books as well, on Fieldland, Southland, Sub-Antarctic, all that kind of thing, Māori. Um, And then I had children coming into the bookshop, and I just had one shelf of little books for children. And because my bookshops are so small, there wasn't enough room for them. So I thought, well, I'd better build a children's bookshop. So that's what happened. And then I had some farmers coming in and shepherds coming into the bookshop. And they would come to the door and if there were people in there, they'd say, oh, Ruth, we won't come in. Um, I smell a sheep or, you know, I've been feeding out. And it didn't worry me, but they were very concerned about the other um, people I had in the shop so I thought well I'd better build them a bookshop so I built another built bookshop and um, one of the farmers said that I should have called it the Smelly Farmers Bookshop but I found I couldn't call it that because so many women were going to it. It's just a little English linen cupboard and I had a little shed built around it with a veranda and a bench seat and so Um, A lot of people just love to go and sit there and look through the books. It's mainly for men, hunting, fishing, tractors, trains, motorbikes, cars, all that kind of stuff. And I've promised my husband I won't build another one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ruth, though, clearly there is a a local audience for um, this You've spoken about the locals coming in, but Manapuri, of course, uh, perhaps not over the last couple of years, but in good times, is a busy spot for visitors from all around the world. Is that partly the motivation as well? No, it wasn't really. The motivation was because I had a bookshop before called 45 South and Below, and I ran that in conjunction with our business, Fiordland Ecology Holidays. We had a charter boat on the coast. And um, so I decided to fill the office up with bookshelves and sell books relating to 45 South and below. And um, I became known for having rare books on Fiordland and hard to find books. And so when I retired, we I had to had to close that bookshop. And it was only after a few years I thought I just missed the book so much, I missed the people so much, that I decided to open it. And I just thought it would be local people, local Southlanders. But, and I also thought it was going to be a retirement job, which was a bit of a joke. Um, so I opened the bookshop, and within 
the first year I I had overseas visitors coming in. I didn't advertise in any way because I really wanted it to be quiet. And then now I'm in my sixth year and it's extremely busy. But over COVID, I had, um, when I was allowed to open after lockdown, I had lots of locals and when the Aucklanders were travelling, lots and lots of New Zealanders coming down. It was amazing. I actually didn't see a downturn in my sales at all. How interesting. And uh, how encouraging for, for those who like to share the joy of reading, to know that there is a hunger for it, uh, even in a very small town. Yes. Somebody said I've got more bookshops in Manapuri than they have in Queenstown, which is pretty funny, really. And so... We come to your own book, and the the bookseller at the end of the world tells the story of your of your life to date. And uh, I must say, I struggle for our listeners in this very short time to encapsulate that in any real way. But if I may, I want to touch on a few things. Um, deserting from the navy. Uh, yes. Life with sex workers and drug addicts in King's Cross. Yes. A son you've had to give up. A son that you lost at birth. And four husbands, um, one of whom had a two-part experience of sharing your life. And that's Lance, who's with you now. It's uh, that in itself uh, might perk up some ears, and um, you know I wonder when you know I summarise what has been a very busy and adventurous life in that kind of way, whether that um, makes you ponder on whether you think your life has been extraordinary. What do you think? I- I never really thought of it as extraordinary, even though Lance, my husband, kept on saying that it was and that I should write a book. He's been saying that for years and years. But I I just, I knew that it was, could I say, it's a pathetic word to use, but busier than most. The book only goes to the age of 35, and... I know there is another book because so much has happened since I was 35, but I don't know. I I think that I didn't set out to do a lot of these things. Events just evolved. When I deserted from the Navy, it just evolved because I always believed in standing up for... um, If I thought something was not just wrong, but also um, could be improved on, I hope nobody in the Navy is listening to that, but um, I felt that as a sick birth attendant, I was signed up for three years, and after three years, you come out with nothing. And so I thought, well, why can't we come out with some kind of qualification? They weren't interested in listening, so I thought, okay, well, I'm out of here. I, I have always felt that... Life is really, really for living. And I have to be very careful with my brain because if I get an idea 
I either have to shut it straight down or I know that I'm going to go through with it. So um, I think things in my life have just evolved. It was just like when my father gave me the pregnant pig that evolved into one of the first free-range piggeries in New South Wales. So, yeah, there are adventures, absolutely. And some of what has happened to you uh, would be so have been so immensely difficult to deal with that one might call what part of your response to that has been kind of running away. You, you were raped at 17. You had... Uh, a son that you weren't even allowed to hold, and you then went into the Navy. There was the desertion that we talked about. Uh, you spent time on Stewart Island. You learned to work as a cook. Um, you met Lance, who was crewing on crayfish boats, and a romance ensued, and that was broken off at... Um, no doubt. It all sounds disastrous, doesn't it? Well, well, okay. I mean, did you at that point feel that your life had been disastrous? Yes, I did. And that's why I left New Zealand. And I, even though I missed home and I missed New Zealand, I kept on going and it was, was years before I came back. I had this yearning to find my son and I knew that when I came back to New Zealand that that emptiness would return. And all the mums that are listening to this that have given up a child in the 60s and 70s when we weren't allowed to have any contact with our children at all or understand that emptiness. But um, I think that there was always this... I always had the ability to shut off what was happening or what had happened and just get on with it and think, okay, I've got one life, I've got to turn this around somehow. And so that's what I did and my family found that very, very hard. It's interesting that a man, <coughs> a man from Timaru <coughs> drove all the way from Timaru to thank me for writing my book because when he read it, he saw in it his sister, who he had broken his relationship with because she was so difficult to be with. And when he read my book, he suddenly realised what was happening to his sister and he drove all the way from Timaru. And was, we were standing on the footpath crying and he said, um, I want to thank you for writing the book because when I read it, I realised what my sister was going through and he rang her after years and asked her if she'd been sexually abused, and she said yes, and he said, I'm coming up to Auckland to see you. And they renewed their relationship. And I gave him a big hug because I said that if that was the only thing that came out of my book, it made it worthwhile. But it's not the only thing. I get all these amazing letters and emails and gifts in the mail from people that have thank me for writing it and yet um, it's my readers that I should be thanking Well it's an amazing tale of resilience, I mean still in your 20s your first husband Peter was killed in a car accident uh, you gave birth to Joshua, he lived for just 13 hours, still more being thrown at you at a young age 
uh, that will have tested your sanity. Yes. To and the... that's not long after that that I attempted suicide. And, and I had planned that. Well, I hadn't actually planned it, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I didn't think I could take any more. Um, and so I ended up in the psychiatric ward in Melbourne. And I was hoping that <clears throat> the young couple that found me in the same dreams would actually read my book and somehow contact me because I'm easily found. You know, Ruth Shaw Manapuri, there's only 200 plus people living here. And I thought it would be absolutely amazing if they had read my book and then thought, oh my God, that's the young woman we saved in the Sandrines. And I would have been able to thank them for giving me back my life, but they haven't. And from that point, you did rather grasp the life in a more more positive way, I guess. I mean, the work that you did in Sydney, at Sydney City Mission Crisis Centre, helping sex workers and drug addicts in King's Cross, uh, getting to know street workers uh, and, and so forth, that would have felt like important work, I'm sure. Very important. And I think that um, when I was working with the street kids um, in Invercargill and kids in trouble in Invercargill, I would do a lot of talks to women's groups and lines and places like that. And the stigma of prostitution was very, very harsh back then. And also the stigma against gangs. And I, I, I don't support gangs, but I would say to a group, um, you call yourself a society or a club, but in fact it, it could be called a gang because it, you just, it's a get-together. And they would look at me horrified. And so I would go into, when I was doing public speaking, I would say, well, I can either be here for four or five minutes or I can be here for half an hour to an hour. It's entirely up to you. If you don't like what I'm going to say, well, then I, I understand that. But we should never, ever judge prostitutes, anybody really, until we know their story. And many of the prostitutes, male and female, that I worked with had incredibly sad stories. And then there was... Wendy, who who just had a goal that she was going to save enough money to buy her own house. So I think that um, when you accept people like that, it puts everything in perspective. But even that work found you getting into trouble again. <laughs> the. <laughs> No. <laughs> to the point where you had to, you felt you had to to leave Sydney to get away from um, potential danger, yes. and yes. that saw you come back to New Zealand in 1984, 15 years after you'd um, sailed away. And on your second day back, while staying with your father, you got a phone call. Tell us about that phone call. Well, um. I answered the phone and this male voice said, you most probably don't remember me. 
um, but I've only got one question, and is that, are you still a Catholic? And I thought I recognised the, the voice, and I said no. And then I realised it was Lance, because that's what basically broke us up. And so he said, are you married? And I said no. And he said, he was ringing from Manipuri and I was in Christchurch and he said, um, I'd like to see you and I can, and I said, well, I'm coming down to Cromwell to, to look after my sister for a little while and he said, I'll drive up tonight and pick you up. And so that's how we renewed our, our relationship and we were very nearly married when we were on Stewart Island and we had wedding rings made out of gold from my father's gold mine and I still had that wedding ring I carried it with me everywhere and it was um, oh my god will I still love this guy will I even want to be with him on damaged goods and all that kind of stuff that you go on about anyway when he stood at the door I just knew and so that was my new path in life and so I've got this amazing husband that accepts me for everything that's happened to me. And there you are together in Marapuri, running three bookshops. That's right. <laughs> have you ever considered, Ruth, what or how your life might have taken a different turn if that phone call hadn't come? Oh, absolutely. It would have been another disaster, Jeff. I, at that stage, I was engaged to a Dutch guy. You know, I don't know what it is with me and men, but um, as my father said once, he said, are you trying to outdo Elizabeth Taylor? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, I I just, and I had a boat. I still had my little boat. I would have gone sailing again. Um, Yes, it would have been very, very different. We have... Only been able to scrape the surface, but I really appreciate Ruth Shaw the time that you've taken to to speak with us here on ORFM today. Um, and this is really just an opportunity to set up tomorrow evening because you get a, an opportunity to speak with the wonderful Magella Cullinane about your book and no doubt more about how the book came about and um, we just don't have time to talk about that today so hopefully anyone who's interested will pop along um, but but perhaps just finally uh, the, the as a you know as a writer now uh, how confident do you feel that um, that you can encapsulate and express this amazing life and you've sort of touched on it you know is there more to come can we expect part two (laughs) maybe (laughs) (laughs) that's fair that's a fair response Ruth Um, but I do encourage anyone who's interested to pop along to the Dunningham Suite tomorrow night. Do get your tickets for it. It is a ticketed uh, event. You can find it through Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The link's there. Uh, 5.30pm at the Dunningham Suite to hear Ruth Shaw in conversation with Magella Cullinane about her wonderful uh, memoirs. And uh, it will be, I'm sure, 
an engaging and engrossing conversation as it has been this morning. Thanks so much for joining us, Ruth. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, and thank you to your listeners. Bye. Kia ora. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.